Would you look with me at Acts chapter 26? We're sort of in the middle of something. Acts is a story. So anywhere you go into Acts, you're in the middle of a story. But we ought to know the story, so I'm trying to give some context. But here's what's going on in Acts chapter 26, at least the amount that you can that's fitting on the screen. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then I skip a little because, you know, in the interest of time, uh, Paul tells a little bit about his story. And we'll get back to some of that. But here's how it sums up. It's fascinating how this thing draws to a head. It says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works in keeping with their repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light, or uh, yeah, proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. He's talking about Agrippa now. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And thus says the word. Of course, he had appealed to Caesar in the last chapter because uh, the governor had said that he might concede to certain Jewish leaders to take this trial over to Jerusalem, in which case Paul was aware that there was a plot to kill him. So he took advantage of the rights that he had as a citizen. Not a, you know, Rome, only a few people, rel I mean, relatively speaking, not everyone got citizenship. And it had its privileges. And one of those privileges that Paul had that no other apostle had was citizenship. One of those privileges was he could appeal. He had recourse. You know, you know if you go to court... And you, don't, and you think the decision was messed up, you can appeal to a higher court. You know how that works? Until you get to the big one. Right? The big one, there's no, we, our system has no appeal beyond that. 
Paul's got the Caesar himself. And once he made the appeal, of course, Festus, wanting to get rid of this guy, said, granted, <laughs> send him up the, up the river and get him out of my way. But, but here came this king. So now just to sort of recap, we talked about this last week. I told you about two historic trials. This is one of them. And then there was one that happened a long time later, but it happened to be an anniversary. And that was the trial of a monk in Germany named Martin Luther, which took place 500 years ago last week. And these two men, these Christian servants, separated by some 15 centuries, in each case, standing by themselves, alone, in front of the most powerful men of their times, in an intimidating format with the hot spotlight down on them, all by themselves, and given permission to speak, as it said in the first verse. That could be a good title for these two messages. Permission to speak. So today I want to look at what happened when they got permission, particularly Paul. What did he do when he got his permission to speak? And what can we learn from what he did when he got his moment? There are some good lessons we can take from what happened when Paul, and for that matter we can take them from Luther as well. What happened when permission to speak finally came? So here are some simple points we can learn from what happened here. So the first one is simply that Paul was ready. He was ready when the time came. But he had to be patient. You've got to be, and I've got to be ready. But we've also got to be patient. And what do we mean? Well, you know, Paul was ready, as he said to Timothy. He told Timothy to be ready. How often? When? In and out of season. When you feel like it, when you don't. When, it's, when it sort of fits into your schedule, and when your schedule's tight. You just got to be ready. Make sure you're ready. That's what he told Timothy. He was ready. He had been ready. How long had he been ready? Well, this is where the patience part comes in. Paul had languished for two years since he had had that last hearing. And the governor sort of like, yeah, we'll do something with this guy. Left him just sitting there in custody. Two years in chains, waiting for his chance. He's wondering, am I going to get my chance? He's been waiting for this hearing to come. That's, that's patience. Wheels uh, turn pretty slow sometimes. And so he's waiting day after day. What I'm a missionary. I've been on these journeys. I'm being faithful. And here I'm sitting. Every day I wake up, I'm stuck in this room. When does my chance come? When does come go? When am I? I've got this voice. I'm ready to speak the truth. When? He waits for two years. But then one day, one day the word comes. All right. Not only do you get this audience with the new governor. See, the last guy was Felix, who left him hanging there. Felix. Now we've got a new governor, Festus. Not only, you, not only is it him, you will also be speaking to the man appointed to rule Judea. One of the Herods, grandson of Herod the Great, Agrippa. This is an important guy. Agrippa was raised with emperor, future emperors. He had been in Rome. He knew all the, he knew the royal family, the Caesars. Here he is. You're going to get to talk to him too. And he's bringing his sister. And that's a whole sordid soap opera on its own that I will not get into. But 
Yeah, that's a reality show for ancient Rome. NC-17, I suspect. Well, here he is. So, I mean, just think of it. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's patient. But now he's, it's like, hey, get ready. You're going to get your chance. Are you ready? Are you ready when your chance comes? You and I don't get to set the times, do we? How much of time do you control? How many circumstances do you control? A lot of people get out over their skis. They start to get to thinking that I have some control over things. You got no control. And all it takes is a little tiny bit of reality to smack you across the arrogant face to remind you you're in control of bupkis, as they used to say, to use the Latin. You're in control of diddly, to use the Greek. Yeah, you, you've got very little control. We, we like to think we do. We've got a lot of technology. And, you know, we got ourselves calendared out on our phone and all that stuff. But we don't control much. And, and you're one announcement. You are one event. You are one millisecond or one phone call away from major transformation. And it could get out of control real fast. So, I mean, you think Paul... On his journeys as a missionary, he thought, now, it's likely that this time next week I'll be sitting in a cell. I mean, he thought it could have happened, but he just doesn't know when. Actually, Paul might not be the best example, because he, he might have been ready for that sort of thing. But you're probably not. But you know, the day could come. The day could come when they say to you, if you profess these things, these things are no longer legal for you to profess and say out loud. And then what do you do? Will you be like some of our, our, our brothers in, in China and other places? And you just take you run the risk, wind up in a cell. There are pastors and, and other church leaders right right now in all kinds of cells, in all kind of holding places, because they just they just did what we're doing, but it wasn't legal. So we don't get to set those circumstances up we we wait for those opportunities to come we got to be ready and then when the light is green you got to be ready to go when the light turns green and you might find those circumstances anywhere at work or i mean it could be a big stage it could be a smaller platform but whatever it is i mean it could be this big you never know just imagine this what, what if you got a phone call today oh, let's make it tomorrow monday's less conspicuous let's say you get a call tomorrow morning 10 a.m and some guy says hi I'm uh, I'm Mr. Big Shot so-and-so with a multi-conglomerate media association. We're really interested in what you think about the world today, what's going on, the problems of human beings, and what the solutions are. We're sending a camera crew out to your house at 5 p.m. this evening, and we'll go live to the nation. We want to hear what you think. You ready? You ready for that moment? Ten minutes uninterrupted. You, for you to just go ahead and tell the world what, what our greatest needs are and how to fix all the problems. Give us, give us the goods. Yeah, that's, um, that's intimidating. But if you are faithful in and out of season at all times, who knows? Who knows? And now you got the Internet. You never know. Something could go viral. And, and it could be on you. And maybe, maybe you'll get that chance. Well, the other thing here is don't neglect the first-person account. Don't neglect your own story. Your story doesn't prove anything, but you are a subject. You are an individual. 
And so while the subjective element can be very tricky to build all of your theology on, in fact, you should not do it, because subjectivism, if, it's your, if, it's, if it is your foundation, you're in big trouble. Cult leaders rely on that. However, however, your story is still powerful. So Paul, we didn't read all of this. We didn't have the time to go. But you know Paul's story, and he told his story. That's what it means to testify. If you're called into court and you testify, oh, what are you doing, really? If, if, if you give, in a court of law, your testimony, what are you doing? You're, you're saying what you saw, what you heard, what happened to you. That's what they want to know. That's why they put you up there. They want to know, what. how about you? What did you see? What, did you, what happened when you were there? What did you experience? And so there is that first person element. And it's not because you're the most important thing. But because your life is powerful evidence. It's a witness to what God can actually do in real time and in a real life. And it really... It really makes an impact. It lands with people. Nobody in that room could argue that Paul had been a fierce opponent and persecutor. Could they? So, I mean, and if they didn't know it, he told them. And if they wanted verification, they could go find out. So, don't you think might have got them to at least wonder, might have moved the needle a little bit to hear this guy say, the man you're looking at here I used to throw us in prison. I was like you. I hated us. And I went after us. And I had the authority to do it. I had letters in my hand. But now, look at me. I'm, I'm a notorious, from their point of view, notorious missionary traveling from city to city. You've heard about it. How'd that happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. And so he tells them how it happened that he went from there to there. Like, remember the blind man and Jesus healed him? And this guy was no great scholar. He wasn't ready to dispute with the religious leaders. But you know what he did know? And he knew it very well, first person. I was blind. Now, you can do all the scientific studies you want. But take it from me. I'm kind of an authority on this. I was blind. And if you want to go ahead and test me now... Well, I'm looking at you, brother. That's a nice tunic you got on there. By the way, you need a haircut. I mean, he could tell him right now, I see. And that's powerful. So when people's lives get turned all around and transformation happens, it's difficult to argue against it. So you make God look good. You make God look strong. You make the, the gospel. You give it tangible reality to people. When they, when they see or when they hear about how, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people look at you and look at me and they, and they think, yeah, you, you church people, I mean, you've got your stuff together and you're good and you don't have all the problems we have. You, you're, you're just a good person and I'm not and that's easy for you. But they need to hear that that wasn't always so. And then you can say to them, I was just like you. I had whatever, whatever your problems are. Someone had. There's a Christian somewhere that had your problems, and even if it wasn't me, I'll find you somebody who. It was. I know someone. So maybe I wasn't a meth addict, but I'll find you one pretty quick, who God changed. That's right. That's right. You know what I mean? And that's powerful. 
So Paul goes ahead and lets him know who he was. So you always got that. Even a lot of times Christians fear, I'm no scholar. I can't get into discussions. I just don't know anything. I think we have a lot of, we hide behind a false humility sometimes. As if I have to get what? How many PhDs in theology do I need before now I'm ready? That may just never end. Because, you know, the more you learn, the more you actually learn you don't know much. That's the curse of learning. It's just the wise man understands what an ignoramus he really is. It's the people that know it all that are the dummies. That's how that works. So, so you're never going to get there. You're never going to reach the place where you say, <clears throat> Now I know enough. Now I'm off to be a witness. You'll be like 165 years old by then. So, you, you can say what you do know. And one thing you certainly know is your own first-person account. That's right. yeah, that's and no one can argue against it. Well, you've got to prioritize the gospel. That's something Paul did as well, didn't he? He's only got one shot at this. These guys aren't going to sit all day and listen to him. So in the middle of what he's saying, he makes real sure to get down to that part where he says, you know, the message I preach, here it is. <laughs> That Christ must suffer and die, and that he was raised. He gets to the gospel. He makes sure that he, as the saying goes, you know, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right? It's easy to get distracted. I know that. I, I, I'm a curious sort, and I, get, I, can, I can wind my way down rabbit trails of all sorts. I'm interested in all kind of stuff. And I can philosophize all over the joint. And I can get miles away from home, from, from home base. i got to make sure I stay near. I keep it in my sights at all times. And when I'm discussing with people all kinds of things, I want to make sure, does this person even understand the basic, basic message of the gospel? I don't want to lose my chance on that. I don't want to shortchange. I may, I may even win some points about some... Minor thing by comparison. Some peripheral thing we're debating about drug laws. I don't you name it. Whatever. And I may feel like, well, I think I made some good points there. I think I persuaded them. All right. Hooray. But, but they may go off confused as all get out. Still their life, they don't have direction. They still, they're still missing the main. They, they don't know God. And I blew it if I don't get a shot again. So I'm not, I, and I'm not, I'm not forcing the issue. Because remember, permission to speak, you kind of earn that. Permission to speak. Paul got his permission. He didn't have much shot at it. He didn't have control. He couldn't, he, had, he, couldn't, he couldn't force those guys to listen to him on a bet. There was a real power imbalance. But sometimes we could think that. This is not a problem most of us have. But well, can, how much can you force people to listen to you? Not much. And it's not a great witness if you overstep it too far. But, you know, years ago when I was growing up, people would sometimes say, you know, these Christians, they're just forcing their religion all the time, shoving it down our throats. Remember, that used to be something people said more often. Don't, don't come cramming your religion down my throat. Some Christians do that. I remember in Salt Lake City, the Temple Square were the, like the, the world headquarters of the Mormons. There would be people come. Christians would come and they would like talk to people. They'd hand out literature. And some of them would do like street preaching. And some of the ones that I thought were, were better at it that I, that I 
I liked what they were doing is they, they were never overbearing. They talked to anyone who would listen. But if someone just wanted to walk by, they let them walk by. And if somebody said, hey, I don't want to listen to you. Fine, okay. That's fine. That's cool. Go on. I, they, in other words, I'm not going to get in your way, block where you're going. There's, there was no bullhorn in the face approach to it. But one year I was down there, and these guys did show up. Some from some church somewhere traveled from I don't know where. And they they took it up a few notches. And they would block people. You know, and they wouldn't let it go. And they'd follow people down the street and get loud on them. And so some of us, you know, had to uh, confront our brothers and say, <clears throat> Brothers, this is not the way. Or as my kids say, that ain't it. You know, this is not the way. There is a better way. There is a more excellent way. To use Pauline language. And you're, you know, this ain't making it. This is this may be detrimental to us. And they're all gonna go into wherever they go, and they're gonna say, see how we were persecuted by those Bible thumpers. Those mean, nasty Bible thumpers. And so we, we don't force it. But when, it, when the time comes, the time comes. And when it comes, we get our shot. We keep the main thing, the main thing. We make sure to say it. As Luther stood 500 years ago, he was looking up at the most powerful man who was the ruler of half of Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor. He of the Habsburg Empire. Looking down at him. And here he is, a nobody, peasant born, the miner's son, Luther. And basically, he is being told, you're a pain in the rear end, and you are here to recant. You know what that means to recant? It means take it back. Say you were wrong. Change your mind. And go on record saying you were wrong and we are right. And stop saying this stuff you've been saying. That's not really a fair trial, is it? <laughs> they weren't there to give him an equal hearing. By the way, in this world, do you expect a fair hearing everywhere you go? You expect the scales to be balanced? Look, this is a day when everyone everyone complains about how uh, no one's treating them fairly. I know people who tell me that, and they live in huge houses and they've got everything, and they'll still say, "Well, I don't." Their boss didn't treat them right. It's all the rage. But, but you know, Paul doesn't. Paul doesn't waste his few minutes to say, "You guys haven't treated me well enough." I demand my rights. He only he only asked for one of his rights, the right of citizenship, and that was to save his life. I mean, actual rights, yes, you can stand up for the rights that God gives people. We ought to stand for everybody's rights. But some people think it's their right to get their fast food faster or their internet to be quicker. And uh, there's always a politician to tell you that that's your, that that's your right too. Fast internet is a human right. That's my Bernie Sanders way of putting it. You name it, it's a fresh donuts are a human right. Our campaign will ensure fresh donuts. Well, not everything. Paul's not being, Luther wasn't being, but he took advantage of the opportunity he got. He got to say, look, you're asking me. You're giving me a window, a small window, and I will speak as truthfully as I can. And for Luther, 
You know, the gospel was even above his personal safety. He knew what it meant to say the things he was about to say. But the gospel message was too important. It's easy for us to get sidetracked. Our worship is often geared to keep us from doing that. You notice what we do here. We The songs we sing, what's a theme? We keep coming back to the simple things all the time. Today is Communion Sunday. We will be taking communion. A, a visible picture of the gospel. It, it's, so even if we get sidetracked, we come back to the table. And what are we staring down at? The broken body, the shed blood. There it is. It's always front and center. We're gospel-oriented people. And so Paul wasn't going to miss his rare chance. Uh, and they knew that he was a clearly well-read, well-schooled, well-educated person. But as he told the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And as we see in Festus' response, yeah, Festus was a Gentile, and yeah, he thought it was kind of foolish. As in, Paul, you're nuts. So he thought it was foolish. you got to defend the truth at all times. Defend the truth. You know in the beginning of this chapter where it says that Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. You know what that word is? The verb there is apologeo. Apologeo. Apologetics is part of your Christian witness. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. You mean apologizing? Well, apologize is an English word that has there's been a fork in the in the etymology, okay, in, in the in the road of meaning. It happens to words all the time, right? They splinter off and that's why you look at the dictionary, you look at a word, and he's like, number one, number two, number three. Because there's different meanings. Words take on semantic load and they get more meanings so we think of apology as i'm sorry i'm so sorry sometimes apologies are legitimate by the way sometimes they're not um you know it's interesting how they wanted paul to say words that he didn't mean they wanted luther to say words he didn't mean they wanted luther to basically even if he didn't believe it just to lie and say i agree with you sometimes people want that today some people aren't interested in what you really think. They're interested in hearing their opinion come out of your mouth. And they're going to badger you. Till you it's like, what's the old saying the guy says? Hey, if I'd have wanted your opinion, I'd have told you what it is. Some people want to hear the echo of their point of view coming out of your pie hole. And they're not, they don't care what your views are. And the Luther, the, the emperor and all of his... All of his attorneys, essentially, cross-examining Luther, were just saying, just read this script. Some people do that today. It's like those, um, it reminds you of those, um, those hostage videos. You know, the Islamic State and those guys, they'll take someone, they'll have them kneeling down, they'll have them read a script. <laughs> Is there one human being on earth that thinks that person means anything on that script? Everyone knows it. The... The guys holding the sword behind him know that he doesn't mean it. Everyone viewing it knows it. Why go through this charade of pretending? But they do it anyway. It's sort of an exercise of power over him. I made you confess things I believe just out of sheer terror. Sometimes today, people on the internet and everywhere else, they confess to things they didn't do, and they apologize for things, and they don't even mean it. They're just reading a script. It's like a hostage video. Only instead of recanting their beliefs in the old school way, the script reads something like, I now realize that my point of view 
is harmful to many people and my words cause harm and I want to apologize for anyone I have offended. It starts to sound like a robot. And I will do better and I am going to educate myself, blah, blah, blah. We, this is like the same script, everyone. And I think if you confess to things you didn't do and if you apologize for things and you don't mean it, you don't have integrity. You don't have integrity. You will appease some, maybe. A lot of the crowds today that you apologize to they don't even exercise mercy. It doesn't even buy you anything. You give in to them, they just smell blood in the water, and they just they come after you harder. There's not because look, we the gospel extends true mercy. God is merciful. Our message has grace. The world's message is not very gracious. And so you bare your neck. You do not get mercy. The gospel says you bear your neck in, in a manner of speaking. You submit, you humble yourself, you confess your sin to God. And instead of him saying, I knew it, you're guilty, boom, and coming down with justice upon your head, instead of that, as the as these elements picture, he he brings down the hammer on his own head. He he paid that price, and you walk away free. So Paul gets that in and he defends. And then when he gets to the part about the resurrection, you know, Al, you said earlier, right? Resurrection. We're resurrection people. That, that makes sense to us, but it didn't make sense to Festus. He thought that was crazy talk. And so he interrupts him. He blurts out, you're nuts. What are you talking about? What are you, crazy? It's interesting, Paul's response to that. It's interesting that Festus called him by name. Paul, you're crazy. Called him by name. And he also recognized that Paul was a learned man. He didn't say, you're just a simpleton. He recognized it. Eh, Paul, you, you're kind of a smart guy. You seem to know a lot. But you're crazy <laughs> talking about resurrection. Well, have you, ever, have you ever felt like people think you're crazy? You ever been called crazy for your beliefs? Paul's response to that was what? To respectfully deny the charge is tempting to overreact, isn't it? You face an accusation like that? Paul, Paul didn't give a bunch of hysterics, did he? How dare you! I am so outraged and offended that you would say that. He didn't get, he didn't, he'd make a big show about that. He just, he just said it's not true. No, I'm not crazy. Everyone, anyone listening to me, any, any impartial person listening to me knows I'm not crazy. So he wasn't overly offended. Christians do not become overly offended. That's not a good look for us. We've got to show a better way. But you know, he showed that God was the God of reason. Reason is on Paul's side here. God is the source and the author of reason. Did you know that? What does reason even mean? If the world were not created by God. Paul is talking about something amazing. Yeah. Something miraculous. Yeah. Something remarkable. Yeah. Resurrection. Something you don't see every day. Yeah. But that doesn't make him irrational. I remember these past debates I would hear from these atheists. There would be an atheist and these Christian scholars. You ever heard one of those? It's kind of hard to listen to. They're all scholarly. But I remember this one years ago, and this atheist got up and he said, Well, do you know this man over here believes in this crazy idea some creator in the sky made everything. But I'm a man of science. And so I believe. And he laid all that out. And, you know, for a while you're thinking, Wow, this guy's he's the man of reason. And this other guy just wild out religious beliefs. But then the Christian got up. And what he did was masterful. He said, well, let's just lean. He didn't run away from it. He leaned into it. He said, well, you know, thanks to science, and we know more now than we knew back. 
years ago. And what he started to do was to carefully ask these questions such as, you know, the universe, apparently, the common belief is, exploded into existence out of nothing. Like there was nothing, and then, bang, there was an entire vast universe. How'd that happen? Where'd that come from? What caused that? And furthermore, he said, you know, do you know how many variables there are, the fine-tuning of every tiny, minute detail of physics that we could even be here? The ratios, the variables, it's like it's like a dial of a thousand knobs from one to a hundred, all having to be turned to just the right one, and they're all perfect. We are balanced on a knife's edge to even be here. So many variables are there. So fine-tuned is the physics that we could even be here. It's a one in a quadrillion chance that this planet would ever sustain life. He thinks that mindless, blind forces operating on just a bunch of rolls of the dice, like you roll up the dice and it comes up snake eyes a trillion times in a row. Okay, sure. I believe that an intelligent mind is behind it. Now I ask you, who's more reasonable? You see, once he was finished, the crowd was thinking, I think reason's on his side. (laughs) That makes more sense than that. Reason is not our enemy. We are eminently reasonable because God is eminently reasonable. Then Paul turns his attention to Agrippa and he says, Now I want to talk to the king over here, the king of the Jews, as he is so called, because the Romans put him in charge. See, the difference is Agrippa knows the Jewish beliefs. Agrippa considers himself Jewish. He knows about the law. He knows about the prophets. He knows about the concept of a Messiah, the concept of resurrection, the ideas all surrounding. He probably knows what happened with this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. He knows that body was never found. And so Paul says, how about, how about it, Agrippa? What do you say about this? You're aware of all these things. These things were not done in a corner. What say you? This is a good lesson here, you know. If you are, if you are dealing with people who have any respect for the Bible, appeal to Scripture. A lot of people have, a, have an embedded, I don't know, some kind of inherited respect for the Bible, but they've never really read it. Luther was in a context where a lot of people revered the Bible. They respected and revered the Bible. But the common folk didn't know what it really said. Because for some centuries they hadn't been allowed to. It was in a language that only the educated knew. That was changing. Printing press came along. Luther himself translated the Bible into the common German. And you know what happened from there. People start reading it for themselves. So he could appeal to Scripture because they respected it and they revered it. And once, so if you have that, let God speak for Himself. When I was in Utah, sometimes there was a respect for the Bible out there, and people would say, "Well, what do you? Why do you believe that?" And I would go to a verse and I'd say, "What do you make of this right here? What this says? What do you think about that?" Because now that's not my word. I didn't write that. Now they got to contend with holy word. They got to contend with things revealed by God. That's a different level. That's a different playing field. And so I would say, they would say, well, Jesus is really God, not equal with God. And I'd say, unto us a child is born. Who's that referred to? I think that's Jesus. And his name shall be called, read that next part. Wonderful counselor. A mighty God, everlasting father. Wait a minute. See, let the word speak if there's respect. Now, if, they don't, if people don't respect and revere the Bible, that's not what you can do. And then reason is your ally. The natural world, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Appeal to both of them. 
before that imperial uh, diet, that council uh, there in Germany 500 years ago, as the superpower of Europe looked down and the cross-examiner asked Luther if he would recant, you know what Luther said to him? He said, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason. That's where I got those words on my slide. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I cannot recant. I'm not beholden to you. I make my appeal to a higher authority. I said earlier the Supreme Court's our highest authority. In our judicial system it is. Not in the universe. Every king is, is outranked. Every king on earth is outranked. And so you have a higher appeal. And even if they can take your life from you, Luther said, look, I'm always here. I am, I am open to hearing if you can just show me from this word and plain reason. Then I will listen to you. I'm not stubborn. But I'm not going to respond to sheer intimidation. That's not a good argument. And so we still can't do that. These are still the things that are our authority. No matter how much pressure you may feel on you, you stand for the word. God gave you the word and he gave you a mind. He gave you a mind. You know that common sense is the baseline of all philosophy? Everyone's a basic philosopher. Do you know that? You all have common sense, don't you? You got it when you were like three years old. And people would try to trick you. Like, hey, it disappeared. See, it disappeared. And your three-year-old mind would even tell you, nah, that doesn't happen. Nah, stuff doesn't just disappear. Because God gave you basic... You didn't have to read a book to know that. Three-year-old doesn't say, I've read Aristotle and I know for a fact that this cannot be. No, three-year-old just goes, nah, nah, you're fooling me. Because common sense... Can you be so educated that you educate yourself out of common sense? Take it from me. I've been in higher ed for 25 years. There's some brilliant people who have somehow educated their own minds out of reason. I can't explain why that is, but I hear some of the most inane, bizarre, I'm genuinely nutty things from people with a lot of letters after their name. Well, it literally says... Agrippa, when he hears Paul say that to him, it literally says, Paul, in so small or little, you will persuade me. Oligos, in so small, oligos, like a rule of oligarchy. Will you persuade me? Most, most translators put that in the form of a question. Paul, are you kidding me? In this short time right now, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? The King James translators, though, didn't make it a question. They just simply said, they had Agrippa saying, I am all, almost persuaded. You almost persuade me? Anybody ever sing that hymn in church called Almost Persuaded? You ever heard that? Once in a while we would sing that in church. I bet David knows that one, right? Yeah. Is that in this hymn? These hymns? I don't know. Almost persuaded him to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive something. I can't remember how it goes. They took that from the King James of this from this passage. So what he's, the way those translators took it was him saying, you, all, you, you convinced me a little. You convinced me a little. I mean, if I'm Paul, I almost take it, if that's what he's saying. Sometimes it's incremental. When you talk to people, you can't, don't, expect, don't expect to walk out of every room when you testify to somebody 
that they're going to say, I am hereby convinced, how may I be saved and where is the water that I may be baptized? It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you know, unless you are unless you are a super duper duper gifted evangelist, and God bless you if so, uh, you're not going to have those experiences that often. But you plant seeds. You put a stone in the shoe. I want to put a stone in their shoes that when they walk away, it sort of bugs them like, Ugh. I still kind of hold my beliefs, but I'm kind of un- I'm uncomfortable. The guy said something that I'm, I never thought of before. That's good. I hope he lays awake at night thinking about it. You know, sometimes Christians are challenged by people who aren't Christians, and it, and it keeps you up a little bit. You're like, man, they asked me a hard question. C.S. Lewis said once, that works both ways. And C.S. Lewis was an atheist once. You know what he said? He said, when I was an atheist, it worked the other way. Some, some of my Christian friends would say things and ask me things, and I would lay awake at night worried. <laughs> they put something in my mind, and I'd be like, hmm, what if they're right? No, you plant those seeds. You don't know what might happen, but you plant... Those seeds. A lot of people today, you know, Agrippa acts offended. Oh, you're going to persuade me? Ha 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 ha. Is it wrong to try to persuade people? Not at all. It's natural. Everyone's trying to persuade you all the time. Everywhere you go, you're trying to. Every every ad you see, every movie you watch, trying to convince you of something. Happens all the time. People, though, today talk about so-called culture wars. Ideological battles, culture wars. But what we have to realize, what we have to remember is we don't fight against people. We have an enemy, don't we? Don't forget you have an enemy. But he ain't human. We wrestle not against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6. That's not your fight, isn't it, against the person? Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards once said, when you engage those who oppose you, he said, quote, we do it without angry reflections or contemptuous language as seeking his good rather than his hurt, more to deliver him from the calamity into which he has fallen than to be even with him for the injury he has brought to us. I read this recent Gospel Coalition article and the guy made the point brilliantly. He said, we are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. For them. Because they might be confused in a world of hurt, chasing down falsehoods, worshiping idols, not knowing where to find their happiness, meaning, and purpose in life. We're not fighting against them. We're fighting for them. They may feel sometimes like we are. But we actively... So no, we're not... I'm not telling anyone here not to stand for truth and not to wage the war. You wage it. You push back against this present darkness. But it ain't people. Paul said we tear down arguments raised against the knowledge of God. But people are not your enemies. Will they make us their enemies sometimes? Yes. And we cannot help that. Paul asked the Galatians. He said, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? The Galatians, he loved the Galatians and they loved him. He says, some of you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. But now, now you're going to be my enemy because I speak a true word. Not going to be easy in this world. Saints, sometimes Jesus said the world hated me. It's going to hate you. So just go ahead and buckle up for that. But when your time comes, you've been patient, you be faithful. The light turns green. Be ready.